News, 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 news. Hello, everyone, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to be bringing you the news this week. And everyone should know we're going to take about a two-week break, but we will have content coming your way anyway, so look out for that. Derek, why don't we get started with Israel today? Uh, Yes. So the big news out of Israel is that Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister designate, uh, waited until the very last minute, his deadline to inform President Isaac Herzog that he had uh, finally put the finishing touches on his governing coalition uh, was Wednesday at midnight, apparently just a few minutes before midnight on Wednesday. He made the call to Herzog to let him know that things were done. So he will be becoming prime minister here. He'll be lopping the designate off of uh, that title I, I, relatively soon. I say relatively soon. I don't know exactly when this is going to happen. And I suspect that Netanyahu does not actually have all the like I's dotted and T's crossed. I don't know what the equivalent would be in Hebrew, but because there's been no, uh, he, he hasn't made an official announcement. He hasn't said anything publicly. Uh, he may do that next week. Uh, Herzog didn't schedule a date for a, a parliamentary session to swear in the new cabinet or confirm it, uh, all the things that you would think would be done if Netanyahu were ready to do them. So it sounds like he's maybe uh, playing a little bit here. I'm I'm a little surprised at how long it's taken him, frankly, to put together what is by far the furthest right-wing coalition uh, in Israeli history. It would seem like this is uh, this should have been a done deal fairly early on, uh, but he's clearly struggling to appease all the various stakeholders and give them little pieces of whatever pies they want. So that's where things stand. I mean, as long as Herzog is satisfied that Netanyahu is, is in the ballpark here, that's all that really matters from a legal perspective. And I guess, uh, you know, when he's ready to go before parliament, he'll do that presumably sometime in the next couple of weeks. Thanks, and we'll keep you updated on all of that. Let's go over to Afghanistan and uh, the banning of women from universities, I believe. Yes, the uh, Afghan government announced this week that it is banning women from universities. This is obviously a continuation of the uh, systematic removal of women from virtually all public spaces that the Taliban has been undertaking a project they've been undertaking since they retook power last year. They had already barred girls from attending middle and high school, so this is just sort of the next iteration uh, of that step, but it means that women who were already in post-secondary education or were hoping to to attend colleges or universities are out of luck unless they can somehow get out of Afghanistan and go somewhere else. In terms of the wider political implications. This is, of course, going to further erode the Taliban's already very low prospects of winning widespread international recognition, at least in the near term, as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. I think the U.S. is already, you know, out of the gate, unsurprisingly, with criticism of this step and, you know, warning that it's going to have consequences in terms of sanctions and, you know, in terms of the the question of legitimacy. So not a great development from uh, if you're a, a, an Afghan woman and certainly not if you're, um, you know, hoping for some degree of normalization, at least to help ease the humanitarian crisis that that country is in. Uh, this just will, will make that more complicated. And once again, highlights the difficulties of American power 
bringing things like liberalism overseas, you know, after 20 years of occupation and more, it's interesting to see where we are today. I don't know, Derek, what do you think? Yeah, it's what we were doing for the last 30 years didn't work. I don't know what the, I mean, the Biden administration has obviously made the decision to leave Afghanistan, despite the fact that it was really on autopilot, which I commend them for doing. But yeah, it's it's not a great track record in terms of, uh, you know, trying to force people to adopt the good liberal rules-based world order or whatever we're calling it these days. Let's move over to China, speaking about liberal rules-based order, uh, and talk about uh, what's going on there with COVID. Yes. So uh, as people uh, presumably know, Chinese authorities phased out their zero COVID policy, which uh, featured extreme lockdowns and very onerous restrictions on people's movement to try and keep the number of COVID cases to an absolute minimum, phased those out earlier this month in response to some fairly widespread protests that hit a number of cities. The cities started this, city government started this movement, uh, kind of lifting restrictions, and then the national government followed suit. Well, the flip side of the coin now is that there are indications uh, from inside China of authorities scrambling to add extra hospital beds uh, and otherwise kind of respond to or prepare for a very substantial wave and possibly more than one uh, of new COVID cases. You know, there's been a lot of stories in Western outlets about the wave having hit and, you know, large numbers of undeclared deaths and, you know, new cases that haven't been uh, announced by the government. I'm, I'm reluctant to put so much stock in those reports, which sound almost like, you know, we're celebrating the, the failure of the Chinese government to deal with this crisis. But there are indications outside of the realm of kind of, you know, wish casting or divining. Uh, how many extra deaths or, or extra cases there are. There are indications of that authorities in China are preparing for some kind of major crunch. The concern here, obviously, is twofold. Uh, and, you know, I say there's some crowing in the West. I think that that's countered by the fact that China being such a massive part of the global economy, anything that threatens to slow down the Chinese economy at this uh, stage of the game is not something that Western countries, especially the U.S. and and European countries, want to see. So there is concern on that front. There's also a lot of concern that a very significant wave, or like I said, could be more than one over the course of the winter of COVID uh, kind of working its way through the Chinese population raises a lot of possibilities for mutation, for new and, you know, even more exciting COVID variants. So there, there have been some comments out of Western governments, uh, the U.S. and and others over the last couple of weeks uh, offering assistance. I think the Chinese government did cut a deal or or a Chinese company cut a deal with Pfizer for their Paxlovid uh, antiviral medications. I haven't seen anything in terms of vaccines, Western vaccines being, you know, brought into China or anything like that. It's still unclear how much assistance uh, the Chinese government would really be willing to accept does seem like an era of COVID has ended, though. It'll be uh, telling what direction uh, COVID policy goes in in the future in relation to deaths. Yeah, the lockdowns, I mean, you know, now that there's they're not even happening in China, that was sort of the last place where right. there was really an intensive effort to lock down. And, and, you know, you can't put that genie back in the bottle, so to speak. Right. So what will happen with new waves and, and who's dying when will be instructive <laughs> as to what society yeah, values. Are yeah, I value. think it will be. You're right. Let's turn now, Derek, to uh, Fiji and the election results and the possible coup. Uh, Yes. So uh, people may know Fiji uh, had a parliamentary election earlier this month. Uh, They finally finished counting the votes over the weekend. Uh, It turned out that the 
party of incumbent Prime Minister Frank Bidimarama, uh, his Fiji First Party, finished with 26 seats. It lost its majority, uh, but was only too shy of you know majority if it could attract a, a, some other parliamentary support. The uh, opposition coalition, which is a, a two-party coalition led by the People's Alliance, a former Prime Minister, Sidiveni Rabuka, and the other parties, the National Federation Party, they finished uh, also with a collective 26 seats, two seats shy of a majority. So this meant that the fourth place party, the Social Democratic Liberal Party, which emerged with three seats, just enough to play literal kingmaker, they wound up negotiating a deal with uh, Rabuka and his People's Alliance Party and the uh, the National Federation Party to add their three seats to their 26 seat total, giving them a slim majority in parliament. And that's where things stood kind of at the beginning of the week. Since then, Bidi Marama kind of disappeared for a couple of days from, from public. He didn't acknowledge the win. Uh, his party suggested that the coalition deal was invalid and uh, needed to be uh, voted on in parliament. Uh, then Wednesday, there was supposed to be a session uh, of parliament at which the new government uh, would be rolled out and debuted. That session was canceled under somewhat murky circumstances. And as of today, Thursday, the Fijian military has been called out to help maintain order. Baini Marama did finally, has finally spoken, hasn't said anything about whether or not he feels he lost the election, uh, but has talked about concerns of possible violence, tensions, uh, over the outcome of the election. And so he's called out the military. That's significant because uh, not only does Fiji have a history of military coups, but Bainimarama himself took power in a coup in 2006. So he is not uh, certainly a stranger to this. Now, Rabuka, I should say, when he was prime minister, took power uh, as the result of a coup. So he's not uh, exactly a neophyte here. But uh, Bainimarama being the incumbent prime minister and having a history of uh, precisely this kind of thing, I think you have to start to question now whether or not there's some some shenanigans happening. It's, there's not hasn't been an official declaration that the military is taking over or anything like that. But there certainly seems to be some funny business happening. Good use of funny business. Uh, speaking of elections, what's going on in Tunisia? Uh, so Tunisian President uh, Kais Saeed had his uh, new parliament, of an election for his new parliament over the weekend. Now, uh, most people are probably uh, familiar with the fact that Saeed dissolved the old parliament. He suspended it uh, back in July of 2021 and then dissolved it a few months later. Uh, basically set himself up to rule by decree uh, in what was uh, what some people have termed uh, a sort of self-coup or power grab. He then rammed through a slew of constitutional changes, empowering the presidency, stripping some power from parliament, and set up this vote uh, over the weekend to elect a new parliament under those new rules. Now, the, this is sort of a, a almost a no-lose situation for Saeed in that uh, most of the opposition parties, the major opposition parties, boycotted the vote because another one of the changes that Saeed uh, kind of pushed through was a, a change to drastically weaken the power of political parties. So they were protesting that, among other things, is just general power grab and dissolution of parliament in the first place. So it was likely, it's likely that, you know, whatever parliament emerged would be skewed somewhat in Saeed's favor. And anyway, even if it wasn't, uh, he had stripped it of enough power that it wouldn't really matter. 
uh, he was going to be in control of everything. Now, I say it's almost no lose because he did wind up, in fact, losing. And the reason the way that he lost uh, this election is the turnout initially was, uh, according to Tunisian election officials, uh, a whopping 8.8 percent. Tunisia's main opposition coalition has called on President Kais Saeed to resign after Tunisians overwhelmingly boycotted parliamentary elections. Fewer than 9% of eligible voters took part on Saturday, the lowest participation in any vote since the revolution in 2011. This election comes almost a year and a half after Saeed deployed military vehicles to suspend parliament before then pushing through a constitution enshrining his one-man rule. Saeed denies accusations that he has undermined democracy, saying such action was needed to break the political deadlock and undo economic decay made worse by the pandemic. The electoral board president said the modest turnout could be explained by the absence of foreign financing in contrast to previous elections, claiming this was the cleanest election with no vote buying. The first results are expected on Monday. Now, they have revised that upward to 11.2%, but this is obviously uh, humiliatingly low uh, if you are a, a president who's looking for po- popular legitimacy to ratify your uh, power grab and your constitutional changes. Uh, and so Saeed is now, you know, he's taking calls from all over the political map, from unions, from uh, opposition parties to resign. There's no mechanism to force him to resign. He still controls pretty much, you know, all the levers of power uh, in the Tunisian state. But he's now got to go through another humiliating round of this because almost all the districts, there were just a handful of districts in the weekend vote that produced a decisive outcome. The second round or the runoff round is going to be coming here in another week or two. Uh, that's likely to be very like ultra low turnout again, uh, embarrassingly low. So he's got to go through that again. Uh, and and I think the you know the to the extent to which uh, there have been questions about uh, just how widespread Saeed's public support was as he was going through this process of accumulating power. I think uh, whatever approval or support he may have had when he initially seized power. Uh, much of that seems to have evaporated, which uh, you know would explain the low turnout, and you know does undercut his uh, his legitimacy to some degree. You know, Derek, we don't have uh, bureaucracy in place for you to resign, so just want you to take care of that. Okay, uh, yeah, I'll work on that. <laughs> uh, we'll have to have to set up a succession process. All right, let's move on to Russia, Ukraine. Uh, so there's a couple of things here uh, in Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin made a little jaunt to Belarus uh, on Monday. It was his first visit to Minsk, I believe, since pre-COVID days. You know, any interaction that Putin has with Alexander Lukashenko or, or you know, any interaction that Russia and Belarus have these days uh, always sparks new fears that Belarus is going to become directly involved uh, in the war in Ukraine. It's already, I mean, it's already involved. It, 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 Belarus allowed the Russian military to use its territory as a staging ground to invade northern Ukraine at the beginning of the war. So it's already been involved. But what I mean is, uh, like the Belarusian military would actually be, you know, invading Ukraine and fighting. There is no evidence, of, <laughs> still no evidence that that's going to happen. And And it's not even clear to me what added capabilities Belarus would offer that would really enhance or improve the Russian war effort in any way. 
that said, there have been concerns being talked up by the Ukrainians, and it's hard to know how much uh, this is a serious concern and how much of it is just kind of keeping the appeal for for more weapons uh, kind of at front and center in everybody's mind. But there, they have been talking about uh, the possibility of a new heavy Russian invasion over the winter uh, when the ground is frozen and it becomes somewhat easier to move around. Logistically, that would be difficult because you still have to supply soldiers with food and blankets and all the kind of cold weather gear that you would need for the bitterly cold Ukrainian winter. But in terms, just in terms of the logistics of moving heavy vehicles around, uh, it does become a little bit easier uh, when the ground freezes over winter. Now, this is followed by, on Wednesday, uh, Vladimir Putin appearing in another one of these weird televised, possibly scripted uh, meetings with his military cabinet. He promised the military uh, sort of whatever resources it needs, a blank check, basically, to prosecute the war in Ukraine. At the same time, he sort of seemed to try to pass off whatever failures or challenges Russia has encountered onto the military and kind of absolve himself and the civilian, put that in quotes if you want, government of Russia, of any responsibility for those things. So a little bit of buck passing, a little bit of like, you know, I'm, I'm giving these people everything they need and, and they're kind of messing it up. Nothing I can do about that. During this session, uh, the defense minister of Russia, Sergei Shoigu, uh, floated, I'm sure, just off the top of his head, he didn't, you know, it wasn't rehearsed or anything, uh, floated the idea of increasing the Russian troop presence in Ukraine to 1.5 million soldiers uh, and raising the age of mandatory military service from 18 to 27, the current age range, to 21 to 30. All of these things uh, obviously suggesting that if you read a little bit between the lines, the war isn't going terribly well. They need more soldiers. Uh, they need to extend people's deployments and to open up the possibility of recruiting some older folks to serve. So, you know, that could indicate that they're ramping up to something, or it could just indicate that they're, uh, you know, feeling fairly pressed upon in Ukraine still. So I, I, I don't know what to make of that. But this talk of a, a, a new invasion or a renewed offensive is out there. Uh, now, the other thing to note uh, is, of course, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, took a big visit to Washington on Wednesday. He met with Joe Biden. He gave a speech to a special session of Congress uh, in the evening. Uh, Zelensky's goal here, uh, I think, in the speech to Congress, at least in part, was to speak to uh, Republicans. The Republican Party is, of course, taking control of the U.S. House next month. Uh, and there have been some Republicans, some prominent House congressional, or, well, congressional Republicans, really, who have expressed a little bit of, uh, let's say, uh, eh, what do I want to say here? They've, been, they've questioned the billions of dollars that the United States has pumped into the Ukrainian military uh, over the course of this war. And Zelensky delivered a message. He, he called the, those billions of dollars an investment in global security and democracy rather than charity. He basically said, you know, this has been nice, all the billions that you've pumped in, the $45 billion that's in the new budget that you're, you know, allocating to Ukraine. That's all very nice. It's not enough, though. We need more. Uh, we always need more, apparently. And so, you know, I think that was was one goal here of this trip to sort of speak to and maybe put these uh, uh, Republicans on the spot a little bit. To mark the occasion, uh, the Biden administration did a couple of things. It unveiled a new $1.8 billion or roughly $1.8 billion military aid package. 
that will include a Patriot air defense battery that, that will be sent to Ukraine. You know, the U.S. And, and European countries have been sending air defense units to Ukraine for some time now. This has been one of the focuses for the last several weeks. Uh, but the Patriot is is substantially more advanced than anything the Ukrainians have gotten to date. So that's going to be sent over. It's probably going to go to Germany first. They'll do some training with the Ukrainian personnel before they take it into Ukraine then. The other thing that uh, the Biden administration did, the Commerce Department designated the Wagner Group, the Russian paramilitary private military contractor, as what is known as a military end user. Uh, Wagner Group was already under U.S. sanctions, but what this will do is uh, subject it to the same restrictions on acquiring high-tech uh, products that contain U.S.-made components as the Russian military uh, is already subject to. Thank you, Derek. We should definitely do an episode on, on on the global arms industry and how that actually works, maybe even a series. All right, let's talk a little bit about Sweden-Turkey extradition. What's going on there? So, uh, yes, again, as most listeners probably know, Sweden, uh, along with Finland, but Sweden seems to be the big issue here. Uh, both of those countries are bidding to join NATO. They're membership process or their accession process is being held up by Turkey, uh, which is demanding several uh, concessions, uh, arms sales, and primarily more cooperation in terms of treating people that the Turkish government defines as terrorists or otherwise kind of criminal actors. Uh, this includes people who are affiliated with the Fethullah Gulen organization. It includes Kurds who are affiliated with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, basically anybody the, the Turks don't like. There's a large Kurdish community in particular in, in uh, Sweden that, that the Turks uh, would like to pick through and see some people extradited, I think, uh, to Turkey. Extradition has become one of the big issues. And that's where we, we are as of this week. On Monday, uh, the Swedish Supreme Court blocked the extradition of a journalist named Bulent Kenesh back to Turkey. Uh, he is accused of being involved in the failed 2016 coup attempt against uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey. Kenesh is, in fact, such a target of interest that when Erdogan met last month with Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson, he supposedly uh, requested his extradition by name. Uh, so that's a fairly big deal. The court ruled that Kenesh can't be extradited because of his status as a refugee and because of fears that he will wind up a political prisoner in Turkey. The Turks have already uh, responded with a, you know, this is a fairly unfavorable development. That was what uh, Mevlut Cavusoglu, uh, the Turkish foreign minister, said on Tuesday. So not good from the perspective of, of the Swedish government's uh, efforts to get into NATO. The Swedish foreign ministry has said it, it is bound by the court's ruling. Now, extradition it's kind of a gray area. It's partly legal, but it's more political, more political than legal question generally. But I think there would be some some major rule of law concerns for the the foreign ministry to just kind of ignore the court and deport this guy anyway. So yeah, that's where things stand. Just you know, people are following the story of the uh, attempted NATO accession, and and this I would say is probably a setback from the Swedish perspective. What's going on in Peru? So. Dina Boluarte, the president of Peru, uh, is uh, she just appointed a new prime minister on Wednesday. Uh, this is not unexpected. She's been on the job a whole two weeks, uh, so it's clearly time for a change. She appointed her old defense minister, Alberto Otarola. It's interesting. I'm not sure what the point of this cabinet shuffle is if Boluarte was hoping to appease 
the protesters who have been out in the streets and are still out in the streets and have been for the two weeks uh, since Pedro Castillo, the former president of Peru, was ousted. This is not the right guy to do that. I mean, it's sort of specially, uh, seems like he's specially picked to antagonize the protesters because his defense minister, Otorola, has been responsible for some, to some degree, uh, for the violent government crackdown against the protests. So uh, I'm not really sure what she's trying to do here. Now, the other thing that Boluarte has been attempting to do uh she's sort of recant trying to cast herself as you know from the same communities these these kind of marginalized communities that supported castillo uh she's trying to cast herself as a champion of those same communities and uh to win over the protesters so that's why this this cabinet pick doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me the other thing that she has been trying to do is to move up the next peruvian general election which has been a demand of protest organizers one of the things that people the people in the streets have been calling for so she proposed initially uh, to move. Now, the next general election is scheduled for April 2026. She had initially proposed moving that up to April 2024, then uh, came back a little further and proposed moving it up to December 2023. Uh, the Peruvian Congress has resisted. Uh, they had resisted that last week. They voted against it. Apparently, uh, the leftist parties in the Peruvian Congress voted against because they were hoping to force uh, a constitutional assembly instead of just uh, another election. Uh, there, there's really no appetite for that amongst the centrist and conservative uh, elements of the Peruvian political system, which are still larger, I would say, than the leftists. So there, there was no real chance that the leftists were going to get that. They basically uh, were made to understand that over the weekend. And so Congress on Tuesday did vote to move up the election to April 2024. Now, this vote... Uh, I think it was 91 members of, of the Peruvian Congress, so a little bit over two-thirds majority. Uh, it has to be, the, the measure has to be passed again by another two-thirds majority when Parliament reconvenes next year for it to become law and take effect. But it seems like that will probably happen. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can look forward, I guess, uh, to a new election in April 2024 instead of April 2026. Now, whether that's going to be enough uh, to appease the protesters. Uh, I have my doubts, but, but uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see. And we'll certainly have a special on that election. All right, Derek, let's, uh, let's finish off here with oil sales and President Joseph R. Biden. Yeah, so uh, Brandon did it. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, the Biden administration has profited uh, by around $4 billion uh, from recent dealings with the global oil market. I wanted to end on a happy note, and I'm always happy when, uh, you know, the oil people do well. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas to everybody. So the U.S. has been selling oil out of the strategic reserve uh, to try and keep oil prices down. It's sold uh, 180 million barrels uh, of oil at an average price of, according to, again, according to the Wall Street Journal, $96.25 per barrel. Oil is currently trading in the mid to low 70s. I haven't checked it today, but I don't think it would have changed that much. Uh, and that's where this $4 billion in profit comes from. So if the, the administration were to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve now uh, at these prices, it would uh, it would clear about $4 billion in profit. Now, interestingly, and this is really the, the, the point here, one of the interesting things that in this story 
is that I don't think the administration sees a need to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at this point. For one thing, it it seems to believe that there's still enough oil in the reserve uh, in case of a crisis to weather that crisis. And also, uh, it may be that the fact that the United States, through fracking and shale and all these other things, is now the world's largest oil producer, has lessened the need to have a very large reserve stockpile handy. Uh, so maybe a, a, a kind of significant change, I think, in U.S. energy policy. I don't know that you can draw uh, huge conclusions from uh, this kind of isolated incident, but uh, uh, who knows? Anyway, $4 billion, I'm sure that will be distributed to uh, all Americans or at least those most in need in this holiday season. I think it will and be. will not go into anybody's uh, pocket and you know be spent on luxury items <laughs> all right on that trail off merry christmas everybody uh, again <laughs> merry christmas thank you for Happy listening holidays. to american prestige and if you can for this beautiful holiday season please consider subscribing letting people you know know about the show so we could challenge the american empire in 2023 and beyond bye everybody bye bye